episode 84, Embroidering History. I'm Morgan Shortle, and you're listening to the July 1st, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. The Vietnam War was a time of terrible political unrest in the United States, but it was no picnic for the Hmong people of Southeast Asia either. Join curator Laurel Fritsch and me as we examine some embroidery documenting a tragic time in Hmong history. Known as a story cloth, this elaborate fabric square tells the story of an Asian group's narrow escape from genocide. What story does this fabric tell, and what made these refugees decide to settle in Kansas? Then, we create some fireworks by connecting William Allen White to Independence Hall in Philadelphia. What is White's connection to this venerable, historic building? Did he carve his name into the woodwork or crack the Liberty Bell? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White, the first embroidering history. Good morning, Laurel. Good morning. Today we're looking at a large embroidered fabric square known as a story cloth. It was made in a refugee camp by a group of women from the Hmong culture. But before we talk about how these people ended up in Kansas, can you describe the story cloth to our listeners? Yeah, well, it's really difficult to try to explain something that's so visual, but I'll do the best I can. Um, so basically this is a tan or beige colored cloth. And in the center portion, it depicts a series of vignettes of Hmong people. So in the upper left-hand corner of the story cloth are some depictions of the Hmong in their daily life. So they are traditionally farmers, so there are some people who are farming. There's also a woman wearing traditional Hmong dress who is cooking over a campfire. She also has some animals around her, like chickens and things like that. And then if you move to the upper right-hand corner of the story cloth, there are depictions of some violence that was inflicted upon the Hmong people. So you can see an airplane that is presumably dropping bombs or something like that on a couple of Hmong huts. And there are also some soldiers there as well. One of them is lighting a hut on fire. Another person is holding a machine gun and you can see various animals and also some Hmong people that are fleeing then from the village. And they're heading towards a river which is cutting diagonally across the portion of the story cloth. And there are various people trying to cross the river with different kinds of devices. So there's a couple of people on a raft, there's a couple of people in a canoe, and there are a lot of people that are just using some sort of flotation device to try to cross the river. Brightly colored flotation devices, by the Brightly way. Brightly colored, yes, that's correct. And then in the far left-hand bottom corner, there is a refugee camp that is set up, and there are some officials there that are directing the Hmong people to where they're supposed to go. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who are wondering, Hmong is spelled H-M-O-N-G. And who are the Hmong people and where did they live before coming to the United States? 
Well, the Hmong people are an ethnic group who have their origins going back to the Yellow River region in China. And that history goes back about 3,000 years or so. And um, during their time period in China, they were often persecuted, probably because they were an ethnic minority. And as a result of that, a lot of the Hmong immigrated to regions in southeast China, places like Thailand, Burma, Laos, and Vietnam. And there was a pretty strong um, immigration movement around the 1800s or so. So that's when a lot of people moved. And um, once they arrived in those various countries, they were just mostly farmers. They lived all over in terms of different kinds of landscapes, um, but primarily in the mountainous regions. So embroidered on the historic cloth are scenes from the Vietnam War in Laos and Thailand. What happened during the war to put the Hmong people at risk? Well, a lot of Hmong people worked with pro-American and anti-communist forces during the conflicts in Vietnam and Laos. And in fact, uh, the CIA and the Hmong army in Laos, they formed a secret alliance in order to fight the, the communists in Laos and also then the North Vietnamese. And so as a result of that, when the US military left Laos in 1974, about the same time that they left Vietnam, the Hmong people were then subject to violence and retribution from the Laotian communists. The scenes on the cloth actually do tell a story, thus the name story cloth. What story or stories can you see on this cloth, and what kind of emotions does it convey? Well, earlier I sort of tried to describe what the cloth looked like. But so basically, this story cloth is depicting the history of the Hmong people from their lives as just villagers and farming people to their eventual arrival in refugee camps. So it really covers that whole history and that whole time period. As I had mentioned earlier, we see a depiction of the Hmong villages being burned and animals and things like that fleeing from the village. And so uh, thousands and thousands of Hmong people, they tried to escape Laos by crossing the Mekong River. And the Mekong River is what separates Thailand from Laos. Within this center of the story cloth, you see a lot of emotion emerging from the fleeing people in that scene. So, for example, there's someone who has his hands out widespread, and he's just literally throwing some of his possessions away from him in his urgency to just leave the situation. And also, people just left their homes with whatever they could carry on their backs. So there are people who are just having one basket or something like that that, they're, that they have on their backs, and that was literally every single thing that they owned. Also, a lot of parents ended up giving their babies opium in order to keep them from crying. They were afraid that if the babies would cry, it would alert the communist soldiers to their presence, and then potentially the entire family or the entire group would be killed. And as a result of that, um, a lot of children died, and also then a lot of adults died as well. So you can really see a lot of that emotion coming from this story cloth. Um, and as I said too, in the, in the center panel, you can see a lot of these people crossing the river, and most of them have flotation devices or something like that, but I think one or two of them don't. And so it just really sort of captures that 
desperation that they had to just flee from the situation as fast as they could. And as you said, many of the Hmong escaped to refugee camps in Thailand. Um, the story cloth we're talking about today was made in a Thai camp. And why did the Hmong make story cloths? And was this type of embroidery a Hmong tradition? Well, a lot of the Hmong arrived at refugee camps penniless because they left nearly all of their possessions behind. And so the missionaries at these camps thought that it would be a good idea to encourage particularly Hmong women to produce items that they could then sell to Western markets. And story cloths are something that we as uh, Americans or Westerners are fairly familiar with. We're kind of familiar with that concept of taking a story and putting that on a piece of fabric in order to tell a story. The Hmong have a very strong tradition of very fine needlework and embroidering techniques and patterns. So the missionaries thought it would be nice to sort of combine these two ideas. So the Hmong could use their traditional techniques and their traditional patterns to make these story cloths that would then hopefully appeal to Amer an American audience. And so even though the story cloth as a concept isn't traditionally Hmong, all of the technique that went into it definitely is. The colors that were chosen in these story cloths are sort of interesting. Um, the Hmong traditionally prefer colors that are very, very bright, very bold, and very vibrant. They'll take colors like fuchsia, neon green, uh, neon yellow, electric blue, and they'll sort of combine them and they think it looks fantastic. Um, but uh, Sounds like the 80s. Right, right. It kind of does. Um, but unfortunately, uh, most Americans don't think that those colors work out very well. Um, so what the missionaries would do is choose the fabric colors for the cloths for the Hmong. So in the story cloth we have featured, it's a very muted tan, um, a more muted blue. Um, some of the colors, although they, they are pretty bright, they are a little bit more muted than the Hmong would have traditionally chosen. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, when did the Hmong begin arriving in Kansas, and why did they come here of all places? That's a great question. Um, and. Uh, the Hmong refugees started arriving from the, into the United States from Thailand um, maybe just a couple of years or so after they arrived at these refugee camps. And um, Kansas City was really one of the very first cities that agreed to take Hmong refugees. And the reason why was that there were resettlement agencies, and so they worked with the Thai people in order to get the Hmong's, Hmong people resettled in various places, and they actually worked hard in order to disperse the Hmong communities throughout the United States. And I'm not entirely certain of what their rationale was behind that, but in any case, um, they ended the Hmong people ended up being spread out all over the United States as a result of that. And um, Kansas City was just one of the places that this particular agency selected as a site that might be good for the Hmong to live in. And where else did they settle in the United States? Well, um, they pretty much settled all over, but there are particularly large concentrations of ethnic Hmong communities in California, Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Great. So if you were, if a missionary asked you to embroider a story cloth about a significant event, what would, what would it be? 
And what kind of colors would you use? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, first of all, um, I'm pretty lucky to be able to sew a button. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure if I'd be uh, embroidering. Um, I would probably go with more, more of the muted colors. Um, I have to say, I can't help it. I'm a good Midwesterner. I have to go for those bland colors. Um, and then, boy, in terms of a story, um, well, I'd have to say um, I'm sort of a major event or series of events in my life was going to college. And uh, so probably some episodes from my, my years in college could make a pretty interesting story class. All right. Your college life created yeah. with buttons. Perfect. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yes, exactly. Great. Thank you, Laurel. Well, thank you. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Museum Director Bob Keckeisen. How you doing? Today we connect William Allen White to Independence Hall, the birthplace of the American Revolution. We thought our listeners would enjoy this Six Degrees in the days before Independence Day, better known around here as the Fourth of July. Bob, do you give us some background on this historic building in Pennsylvania? You bet. Well, Independence Hall, as I'm sure our listeners are aware, is a national landmark located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's a red brick building designed in the Georgian style, and it was built between 1732 and 1753. Now, originally, the building served as the state house for the province of Pennsylvania. So this is you know, back when there were colonies, because there weren't states yet. We, we weren't independent. But from 1775 to 1783, the building served as the principal meeting place of the Second Continental Congress, and it was there that the Declaration of Independence was debated and adopted in 1776. Now, you'd think that would be enough historical significance for one building, but no, there's more. It was also in the assembly room here in this building that George Washington was appointed Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army in 1775. The design of the American flag was agreed upon in 1777. The Articles of Confederation were adopted in 1781, and the United States Constitution was drafted in 1787. So that's pretty busy building. Pretty impressive building. <laughs> oh, and there's there's actually a building right here in Topeka that resembles Independence Hall. Uh, most Topekans are familiar familiar with uh, what's locally known as the Menninger Tower Building. It was designed in the style of Philadelphia's Independence Hall. And the signature clock tower building, which a lot of people here know, was built in 1929 as part of the Security Benefit Association Hospital. Well, the Manninger Foundation purchased the building in 1954 when the SBA hospital closed. And it's just located up the hill from us here in Topeka, so a lot of us pass by it every day on our way to work. So there's and a little... you can see it from I-70. Yeah. So, so if you're which... ever driving through Topeka and wonder if you've taken a shortcut to Philadelphia. <laughs> no, you haven't. No, you haven't. But interestingly enough, when I was a kid and we used to drive by there, the clock tower was not what I saw. I saw the smokestack from, like, the maintenance building, and I thought that's where they burned the bodies. Oh, oh. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, isn't that nice? No, I didn't even notice the clock tower. And were there rumors that that was going to be made into a pizza place, restaurant? Really? This kind of off the subject now, but... Well, <laughs> there you go. Not the incinerator. <laughs> no, well, no, the, like the building's up yeah. there. Okay. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Kayla, I believe okay. you have a solution. I do. And interestingly enough, I found out a lot about William Ellen White's ancestry and working on this solution. But I'll tell you about that in a minute. Um, so... Uh, on July 4th, 1962, President Kennedy gave a speech at Independence Hall, which 
is another event in the long line of historical things that happened there. (laughs) Um, Upon his assassination, Kennedy was buried in Arlington National Cemetery, as we all know, with the eternal flame. And only one other president is buried there, and that is William Howard Taft, who we know from previous podcasts spent some time at William Allen White's Emporia Home in 1908 before being elected president. But... In doing the research, I found out that William Allen White is a third cousin five times removed of John (laughs) Hancock and Lyman Hall. He's also a cousin of Samuel Adams. And so all of those signers of the the, uh, Declaration of Independence. Um, I also found out that William Allen White and Theodore Roosevelt, who our listeners know, often comes up in the solutions Uh to Six Degrees of William Allen White, were fifth cousins three times removed. They shared the grandmother, Elizabeth Bess. That's, so, like, that's like not even a relation. It, yeah, <laughs> it, it's not. It's so distant. And you Everybody's look at the a tree. fifth cousin. <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> but I wonder, how many degrees is that of separation? Yes, that's that why I couldn't mm-hmm. use it yeah. because I'm like, yeah, I'm like, yeah. this is 57 degrees. <laughs> 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 I can't use that. But anyway, so kind of interesting. Bob, would you like to issue the next challenge for the next episode? Sure. I hope it's as interesting as this one. Uh, Well, actually, we're going to take a little different tack with the next one. For next time, we want you to connect William Allen White to Shirley Manson, the lead singer for the alt-rock band Garbage. Or, I don't know, I don't listen to him, so maybe it's pronounced Garbage. Oh, it's Garbage. It's Garbage. (laughs) Now, Manson is a Scottish singer who lives in Los Angeles. And the most recent album they had was titled Absolute Garbage, and it was released when the band went on hiatus. Well, while Garbage was on break, Manson began writing her own music and started dabbling in acting. In fact, she recently appeared in the TV series Terminator, the Sarah Connor, Sarah Connor Chronicles, as a liquid metal Terminator. <laughs> what, whatever that is. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> So, if you think you can connect William Allen White to a depressed singer with morphing abilities, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcasts with an S. That concludes episode 84, Embroider in History. To see close-ups of the scenes on the story cloth, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on podcasts. Our weekly photo caption contest is becoming the hottest thing on Facebook. Want the latest cool news and fun stuff from us? Just search Facebook for Kansas Historical Society and become our friend. Come back in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr and I examine a blood-stained playbill from that fateful night at Ford's Theater, when John Wilkes Booth fired a shot that changed the course of American history. Is it really Lincoln's blood on that paper or just a coffee stain? This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.